The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. What would happen if a youth basketball coach spent every moment of practice teaching first graders how to run an extremely complicated team offensive system while forgetting to develop the individual players at all. Forgetting to teach about dribbling, passing, and the fact that to score you actually have to shoot the ball into the hoop. The coach would be guilty of neglecting the growth of the individual children because he focused too much attention on the complicated big picture. The boys and girls still needed his attention. It's not wrong to, to teach them something as a team, but not to the detriment of the individuals. Whether it's sports or a country or whatever it may be, we don't want leaders who neglect the people for the larger plan. And that's one thing that's incredibly amazing about God. As he sits on his throne, sovereignly supervising the complex, big picture things in this world, he never neglects you. God never abandons people because he's so focused on the big picture. I want that to encourage you today. Be encouraged that God's providence on a global scale never reduces his personal commitment to you. And nothing proves that more than what he did to save you. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 if you're not already there. Over the past few weeks in this chapter, we've seen a lot of these big picture complicated prophecies that, that demonstrate God's unlimited sovereignty on a universal, global scale. He controls when the Antichrist rises to power. He will ensure that those who have already rejected Jesus believe the lie of the Antichrist. He will send Jesus back at the right time to crush the Antichrist and set up the kingdom of God on this very earth. Those are complicated things on a macro scale. And we dug pretty deep into these prophecies. I feel like we've been in chapter two for about a year. I hope the digging was beneficial. I hope it's been helpful and valuable, but I wanna be honest and offer a little confession. We almost dug so deep that I buried myself. Honestly, we were so close to the bark on the trees that I almost forgot we were even standing in a forest. And so our text this morning that swirls around the salvation of individuals is sort of caught me off guard again in a good way because it helped me back up and remember why Paul started this letter anyway and why he started this chapter anyway. Paul didn't just write these things so that we know a little, a little bit about the Antichrist, so that we know some things about the end time prophecies. He wrote to persecuted Christians who were struggling with some details about Christ's return because they needed encouragement. 
What could be more encouraging than to remember that even while God is working on a complicated global scale that we can barely fathom, His work in my life and in your life never suffers because of it. He cares about you. We just sang it. He will take care of you. And nothing proves that more than salvation's plan. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's two more verses again, 13 and 14. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. After all the complex big picture prophecies, let's get back to you. Paul said, we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. If you glance back at the first chapter of this letter in verse 3, you'll see a really similar expression where Paul um, talked about his obligation for giving thanks to the readers. And I mentioned then when we were in chapter 1 that it's very common for Paul to offer thanksgiving for his readers. He did it in almost every one of his letters. But you may remember that this is the only letter in which he describes his thanksgiving as something that he was obligated to offer. He doesn't just say, we thank God for you. There's nothing wrong with that. But he says specifically, we are bound to give thanks. We should do this. We ought to do this. We are, we are continually obligated to thank God for you all. Now, I mentioned during our sermon over verse 3 of chapter 1 that during Paul's day, this wording was used in the financial world to refer to owing a debt, something you're compelled to repay. You're, you're required to repay it, and we understand that today. Your car payment's not a suggestion. Your mortgage is not just an option. We'd like for it to be, probably. You're required, you're compelled, you're constrained to pay that debt. And that's how strongly Paul felt about thanking God for the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, he was so thankful for their fruitfulness, for the way their faith abounded, the way their love grew. This time it has less to do with their fruitfulness and more to do with the fact that God loves them and that God saved them. Look at what he calls them in verse 13, we're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord or beloved by the Lord. Sometimes you just need to stop, take a deep breath and remember that God loves you. God loves you. Nothing that happens on a global scale ever changes that. And nothing that happens on a personal scale ever changes that. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that if your circumstances are good, then God loves you more. And if your circumstances are bad, God loves you less. God's love is infinite. It can't fluctuate. The Thessalonians were suffering persecution for their faith. That didn't mean God didn't love them. Paul said, you are brethren beloved by the Lord. So take a deep breath, whatever you may be facing, God loves you. 
And he demonstrated that love most of all in salvation, which is exactly what Paul brings up next and exactly what, what Paul offers as a reason why he felt so indebted to be thankful for them. Notice he said, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. We'll dive into the deep end of this phrase in just a second, but big picture, something's wrong with your heart if you're not thankful to God for the salvation of other people. Paul sure was. Your heart should be filled with joy when people are saved. And then even after that, you should be continually thanking God for other believers, especially your fellow church members. I don't want to be a, a pastor of or a member of a church where the membership is not thankful for one another. That'd be a sad place to be a part of. Thank God for one another. You owe him that. Thank God for your church family. Thank God for the salvation that we share in Christ. It's November, right? We talk about Thanksgiving. There's one thing to be thankful for. is the salvation that God's given us in Christ. Now let's go a little deeper because Paul did say that God chose them for salvation. Sometimes we get uncomfortable talking about God choosing someone for salvation. Not because we don't believe it and not because the Bible doesn't teach it, but because some people teach it incorrectly. And we, we don't want to be associated with that doctrine. And so we, we, we sort of swing the other direction where we're almost afraid to use the same terminology. And I, I understand that. But at the same time, it's okay to use words found in the Bible. Okay, we just need to define them correctly and apply them properly. And so one of the words or ideas that is sometimes hijacked and misunderstood is God's choice in salvation. Paul mentions that here. So let's talk about it. And it is important because there's a lot of very popular Christian authors and pastors who misrepresent this idea of God's choice. First, let me just tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that God chose certain individuals to be saved and certain individuals to be lost, and there's nothing those individuals can do about it. They have no free will. Some Christian groups teach that, and they teach that, that a man or a woman has no free will when it comes to salvation. God either chose you or He didn't. And along with that teaching comes another dangerous teaching that states that Jesus did not die for everyone. So cross your fingers and hope you're chosen. That's a little disrespectful way to say it. I know they wouldn't say it that way, but I don't know what stops you from saying it that way. I hope you know that those beliefs are heresy. Jesus died for everyone. God's desire is for everyone to be saved. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, and he said this, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It doesn't get plainer than that. You say, well, if that's God's heart, if that's his desire, then why does anyone ever die and go to hell? Why is everyone not saved then? And the answer is really simple. It's because not everybody believes in Jesus. Not everybody trusts him. And the idea of trust or belief or faith 
brings us back to the idea of God's choice and what it means biblically. The word chosen here, it doesn't have any fancy meaning to it. Okay, you can dive into Greek lexicons and you can break it apart. It just means a choice. It's that you have made a selection or a decision based on a preference. And if you're making the decision, you have the right to do that. You have the authority to say what you're going to choose. For example, if you go eat at a buffet, you have the sovereign right to choose those foods, right? Do you ask for a blindfold before you go to the buffet? So that you just get random things on your plate? I've never seen anyone do that. Do you purposefully choose foods that disgust you? Children, do you ever go to a buffet and fill up your plate with Brussels sprouts? Now, I like Brussels sprouts. I know Brother Nathan doesn't. No. Do you choose foods that you're allergic to? Foods that upset your stomach? I doubt it. I'm pretty confident that you are going to choose foods that you prefer. Foods that please you, that you take delight in, that taste good to you, smell good to you, that don't upset your stomach. And the buffet analogy is, is helpful because it shows these two aspects of this word choosing. Because on the one hand, you choose the foods. But on the other hand, you eat them. You enjoy your choice. And the way Paul used this word in 2 Thessalonians is sort of like that. We, we might just say it has sort of this reflexive idea to it where God is choosing for himself. He will, he will choose and he will receive his choice. I say, well, what does God choose based on? It's not arbitrary. It's not random. Who would God prefer? Who would God enjoy? Who would God find delight in? Because let's be honest, we're all sinners, right? The Bible's pretty clear on that. God chooses for himself believers. Whosoever repents and trusts in Jesus is chosen by God for salvation. And that has been his choice. That has been his plan, his preference from eternity past. Paul mentioned from the beginning. Your translation may say first fruits because of a textual difference. God chose him from the beginning. It doesn't mean that the, that the Thessalonians had always been saved. Salvation happens at a point in time. In Romans chapter 16, Paul mentions other Christians he, who he said were in Christ before me. It just simply means they were saved before he was. But what this means about being chosen from, from the beginning is that God in eternity past said, I will save whosoever believes in my son. I choose them. I choose believers. And even if you keep reading, and we'll, we'll get to this in a minute, it even shows how he will do that. He's chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Might, we might just say something like the plan was even chosen, that he knew how he was going to do it. But choosing whosoever would believe to save them, that's God's sovereign's choice. It was his decision to make. And it makes so much sense that it's almost too simple. 
but men have a way of muddying up the simplicity of the gospel. I want to sort of reverse it so that you can see how logical and simple this actually is. Why would God choose to save unbelievers? Why would God choose to save people who reject the blood of Jesus? Why would He choose to save people who disregard His love for them and who reject the sacrifice of Christ? At risk of taking the buffet analogy too far, you choose foods that please you, not foods that don't. God is pleased when people trust Him, not when they don't. So, of course, God chooses believers for salvation. Anyone and everyone and whosoever believes. And the simple truth that God desires faith is beautiful because it highlights both His sovereignty and man's free will without undermining either one. God is sovereign because He set the qualitative measure. He's looking for faith in his son. That's his preference. He set that measure before time. He had every right to say that was his, uh, his preference. Jesus has always been God's plan. He's always known that he would choose to save believers. But the fact that God is sovereign over salvation, does it not fit beautifully within this chapter? Not only is God sovereign over the big picture things, like even the timing of the Antichrist, He's sovereign over personal salvation as well. But his sovereignty does not erase our free will. And that's where people just can't reconcile these things sometimes. But since God desires faith, we are afforded the opportunity to respond to God. Some people submit to him and believe, and sadly others do not. God won't force you to believe in him. Y'all have heard me say this a hundred times. God respects your right to be wrong. So that's how sovereignty and free will are reconciled when it comes to salvation. God is completely sovereign over it. He developed the plan. He paid the price. He makes the choice. He sets the preference. He has the right to say who He will save. He's the Savior. So He has the authority to make faith in His Son a requisite for salvation. At the same time, man's free will remains intact because faith or trust or belief gives us the chance to respond to God, yet in an unmeritorious fashion. It emphasizes His grace because it's nothing we can brag about. Faith is not a work we did that makes us worthy of his choice. Brother Goodwin used to tell seminary students this, believing's the only thing you can do without doing anything. Believing's your responsibility, if I can use that word, but it's nothing at all you can brag about. It's grace. So there is a, a divine aspect and a human element to salvation. God did the heavy lifting. He gets all the glory. Your responsibility is belief. In fact, notice the final, the final part of the verse. It beautifully illustrates these two aspects of salvation and how God would carry out salvation's plan. 
God's salvation comes, Paul says at the end of the verse, through sanctification of the Spirit. There's more the divine aspect of things and belief of the truth. There's that human responsibility again. Scholars debate this phrase, sanctification of the Spirit, which is sort of funny to me. Was Paul referring to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit or your own spirit being sanctified? Whichever road you take, I promise you're going to end on the same finish line with that. Your spirit cannot be sanctified apart from God's Holy Spirit. The word sanctification here, it's built off that word holy. We saw it in the first letter to this church, and it can refer to your lifestyle. Sometimes it refers to this process of becoming holier. Uh, and we talked about that, where God does desire his children to learn and grow and mature so that we do live holier lives, so that our lives on this earth reflect more and more the salvation we have in him. In this context, I don't think Paul is stressing that ongoing lifestyle sanctification, but rather the Holy Spirit's, can I say it this way, initial sanctification of a child of God when he believes? He's talking about salvation. When you believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit sanctifies you. You are set apart for God by the Spirit because of the blood of Jesus. When does that happen? When you believe. When you believe. And there's the next part of this phrase. And belief of the truth. And so the sanctifying work of the Spirit points more to the divine aspect of salvation. Belief of the truth points back to the, to the human responsibility of believing. So God chooses believers. Therefore, human decision is not removed. It's demanded. But it's nothing we brag about. He gets all the glory. When you believe the truth about Jesus Christ and when you repent and place your faith in Him, God's Holy Spirit sanctifies you. And these two phrases at the end of verse 13, they work together. They're connected and united. I think you could even say that you can't have one without the other. The Holy Spirit does not sanctify unbelievers. On the other hand, there is no repentant believer who's just floundering around waiting on the Holy Spirit to sanctify him or her. When you believe the truth, the Holy Spirit sanctifies you. You're saved. We could go to Ephesians where Paul talks about the Holy Spirit sealing you and dwelling you. It happens at the moment of belief. You're saved. Here, Paul specifically talks about the Thessalonians' salvation. You say, well, how did, I, how did Paul know that God chose them for salvation? It's simple, because they believed. So they were chosen. Notice verse 14. Whereunto he called you by our gospel. Whereunto just refers back to salvation. And Paul is telling them that God called you to salvation by our gospel. Could we say that the gospel is another way of saying the truth? And he just talked about it in the, in the previous verse. But maybe a little more specific. What is the gospel? What does that word mean? We, we say it all the time. We throw it around like we know what we're talking about. The word gospel in a vacuum just means good news or correct message. Biblically speaking, 
It's the good news and the correct message about Jesus Christ. And the bullet points are that Jesus died for your sins. He was buried, but he rose again the third day, according to Scripture. And whosoever repents and believes in him will be saved. That's the gospel. Notice Paul called it our gospel, though. I love that. Paul felt such a connection to it that he says it's mine. Not in the sense that he, he invented it or that he you know, had some ownership of it. Nothing like that, but he felt that connection to it. If you look back in the first letter, in chapter 1 and verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he said it again there, or I guess he said it again here. That would have been the first time he said it. For our gospel came not unto you in word only. So this, this is not the first time he's done this. Paul felt a commitment and a connection with the gospel. And we talk like that today when we feel a connection with something. I used this same, same analogy months ago when we were in 1 Thessalonians. I just had to change the team names. The Razorbacks lost yesterday to LSU. Did any of you say, we lost? You didn't, you didn't lose. You didn't practice. You didn't play. You're not on the team. Why would you say it that way? I felt that connection with them, though. We ought to feel that connection with the gospel. We don't own it. We didn't invent it. We're not the source of it. But it's ours because we've believed it. We've embraced it. And when our gospel is preached, however that may be, whether it's from a pulpit, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's you talking with your family or friends or coworkers about the Lord, do you know what happens when, when the gospel is shared? The Holy Spirit convicts the hearts of people. God invites them, calls them to believe the truth of the gospel. They are invited for themselves to believe in Jesus, to accept that message, and to be forgiven and be saved. That happened in ancient Thessalonica. Paul and his missionary team came into the city. They preached Christ crucified. And God's Spirit worked in their hearts. And those people humbled themselves, submitted to God, believed the gospel, and they were saved. Paul's thankful for that. So far in these verses, Paul's done a lot of looking back. God's decision to save believers is nothing new. That's an ancient decision. Even as far as the Thessalonian believers go, uh, that their salvation, at least the initial belief in the gospel, that was in the past. They'd already done that. They're saved. But salvation is not just about the past, is it? It would be kind of sad, right? Salvation also looks forward to a glorious future, and that's how Paul ends verse 14. Verse 14 said, Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word obtaining, or if you see gain or share in your translation, same word. It was a technical term in the business world that described an acquisition of something. One Lexicon even said it has an idea of a claim of ownership. A claim of ownership. What can we now claim ownership of? The glories of Jesus. Now, we didn't earn that. 
We didn't work for it. We didn't purchase it. It's not a selfish ownership, just like the, our gospel is not a selfish thing. We can't brag about it in an arrogant way, but God's grace is so amazing that sinners are now heirs of Christ's glory. Those who believe on Jesus will share in the glory of Jesus. How encouraging would that have been for these persecuted believers who are a little confused about Christ's return to be reminded that that's the result of salvation. That's where you're headed. The glories of Jesus await you. I can't begin to explain what that will be like. If I tried, it would fall right here in front of the pulpit. There is no way that I can describe the glories of Jesus Christ. But it'll be worth it. It'll be better than we can imagine. It'll be better than we could possibly describe. To share in the glories of Christ forever is what God has promised you if you've believed in Jesus. If you've never trusted in Jesus, repent and believe in him today. Personally trust him. Never doubt that you are unimportant. Never, never think that you are unimportant. I said that backwards, didn't I? Never doubt that you are important to God. Never doubt that God loves you. Never think that God has more important things to deal with. He doesn't. I want that to sink in. God does not have more important things to deal with than you. Whether you're lost or saved, that's true. Whether you're lost or saved, don't think that you are not as important to God as those complex, big-picture prophecies. Paul's been detailing some pretty big things to come about the Antichrist and the return of the Lord, but all of a sudden he just slammed on the brakes to remind them that that big God loves you and saved you. So don't ever think that you're bothering God. Don't ever think that you're interrupting God. Don't ever think he has more important things on his plate to deal with than little old me. God is infinite. And so he gives everything and everyone his undivided attention simultaneously. God's not like the basketball coach who focuses on the team but not the players. Poor coach, he's a finite human. He's limited by practice time. He can't focus on more than one thing at a time. Well, God can. Infinite power lying outside of the restraints of time can do that. God is giving this world his undivided attention right now. He is setting things up on a global scale for the Antichrist to rise to power when it's time so that King Jesus returns when it's time to crush him. God is infinitely focused on that. 
but his work on that global scale never reduces his personal commitment to you. God is the ultimate multitasker. We have a tough time talking on the phone to one person while the radio is playing in the background. Which one do I listen to? Yeah. God's not like that. He is giving this world his undivided attention and he's giving you his undivided attention right now. And he's giving me his undivided attention right now. And he always has. And he always will. In fact, think about this. He was so focused on you that almost 2,000 years before you were even born, his son died for you on the cross. Before you were even born, God infinitely loved you and cared for you. There's nothing that proves that more than what Jesus did for you. I hope that you're encouraged this morning to be reminded that the God who is holding the universe together and providentially steering the world to his end goal constantly gives you his full focus, his full attention, his full love, because that's all he can do. He is infinite, so he's unable to be distracted. It's not possible for God to be distracted. He's unable to give you less than his infinite best. Why would we not give our best to him? Would you stand? God loves you so much. that he sent his only son to die for you. That was his sovereign choice. And if you'll believe, God will save you. And you will be destined to share in the glories of Jesus Christ forever. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we're just overwhelmed at who you are. Right now, giving just complete focus to this prayer and to the hearts of everyone hearing it and to everyone else in this world. We acknowledge, God, that you are bigger than us. And we're humbled by the fact that you love us. I pray that if there's someone here who's never trusted Jesus, that they would believe and be saved today. Thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your undivided attention. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.